in your Bible to Revelation chapter 3, and while you're flipping there, um, you remember maybe when you were a kid, I don't know, maybe this was my childhood, you know, I don't know if this was yours, but there was a song that we used to sing that began by saying something along the lines of, one of these things is not like the other, one of these things is just not the same. Did y'all ever sing that song? Anyway, it's, it's a way to help kids tell differences between things. So we would always sing this song, you know, one of these things is not like the other, one of these things is just not the same. And you would have to look at a, a group of objects maybe, and you'd have to point out the one that was different. So maybe if you had, you know, five circles, but one of them wasn't really a circle, it was actually an oval. That the game as the kid was to find the oval, that this one's different. Well, we've been going through the book of Revelation so far. And we're at the very beginning, still kind of, we're closing the beginning out. Next week is the end of the beginning. Um, and we've been looking at these letters that King Jesus has sent to seven churches at the very end of the first century. So this was in the 90s AD, not the 90s like 1990s, but the 90s like just 90s, nothing else. Um, that Jesus had these letters sent to these very specific churches uh, via the Apostle John, and he had for each church a commendation, here's something you were doing right, a critique, here's something that I have a problem with, and then a command, here's what you need to do about it. Well, if you were to line those seven churches up, you would be able to sing a song that said two of these things are not like the others, two of these things are just not the same. Because out of those seven churches, there were two of them that Jesus did not have a critique for. That for everything he told them about themselves, he didn't tell them anything they were doing was wrong. One of them was the church at Smyrna. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. The other church is the church at Philadelphia. Not in Pennsylvania, um, but Philadelphia in Asia Minor, um, the Roman province. So that is the church that we are going to look at today, and that's going to be in Revelation chapter seven, or chapter three, verses seven through thirteen. So if you'll stand with me out of the respect for the reading of God's word, we're going to look at those verses today, and then talk about what it means to be found faithful. Revelation chapter three, starting in verse seven, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write: These things say he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David. And who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, I pray that you would take this passage and Lord, you would encourage Stapleton Baptist this morning. That's what you intended for Philadelphia and as a pastor, that's what I beg you to do this morning for Stapleton. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I named this sermon Found Faithful because that is what Philadelphia is. 
Um, that is what Jesus commends them for. And I feel like it is noteworthy <clears throat> to mention that a church that is characterized by faithfulness is one of two churches that Jesus has not a bad thing in the world to say about. Um, that Stapleton Baptist Church, before I want us to be anything else, before Jesus wants us to be anything else, individuals, moms, dads, grandparents, uh, uh, brothers, sisters, uh, sons, daughters, whoever you might be in relation to each other, what Jesus wants from you more than He wants anything else is faithfulness. That is His chief desire for you. Well, what about obedience? What about... What I promise you, if you are faithful, everything else will take care of itself. If you are faithful, everything else will take care of itself. And we're going to talk about what it means to be faithful uh, this morning, but just start out by knowing that faithfulness is what God desires first and foremost from every one of us as individuals and from a church collectively. I want us to see three rewards for faithfulness this morning. And first, Jesus rewards faithfulness with recognition. Now let's give, <clears throat> I want to give kind of a little bit of an intro to this passage. Um, and just a couple of reminders about the book of Revelation. Now up to this point, uh, Revelation has been very down to earth and very practical. That Jesus has been talking to the churches about things within their church life, and they're things that we generally understand because we've probably experienced most of them um, ourselves. You can go back and you can read the first couple of chapters of Revelation up to this point and say, yes, I recognize these churches. I recognize things in them. I've seen them in my own life or in my own church. Uh, this week, however, Jesus begins looking forward to supernatural events in the rest of the book of Revelation that still has a lot to do with how we live today. So get ready for that. Uh, Jesus is, we're going to start leaning into Revelation the way everyone knows the book uh, this morning or what you've heard about it. And second, uh, just also want to remind you when you see things like the angel of the church in Philadelphia, that doesn't mean that there is an angel, you know, with wings and a halo at the church in Philadelphia that Jesus is writing a letter to. The word angel in this passage literally is just the word angelos in Greek. Um, that can also mean messenger. This is most likely the pastor here. So Jesus is sending this letter to the pastor of the church in Philadelphia. And Philadelphia was a city in Asia Minor that literally trans is translated the city of brotherly love. That that's what Philadelphia means. Delphi would have been city. Um, Phila, you know, that's, that's kind of, you know, you know, phileo, the Greek word for brotherly love, the kind of love that you have for a family member. So the city of brotherly or familial love. Um, the reason it was named that was because the particular uh, <clears throat> Greek or Roman ruler at the time uh, changed their, they named the city Philadelphia in honor of their brother who was actually ruling at the time. So he named the city Philadelphia as a way to show love for his brother. And this city has actually been renamed several times throughout history that people renamed the city constantly as a gift to someone else, kind of following that tradition. Uh, so the city was renamed over and over and over again to show love for someone else. So you might say that the city itself was not all that faithful in that it belonged to several different people. Uh, it, was, it was a serial, serial name changer. But this church lives in Philadelphia, and Jesus writes to their pastor saying, These things say, He who is holy, 
he who is true, he who has the key of David and who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. That's a long introduction from Jesus, isn't it? Um, Up to this point, the way Jesus has introduced himself to every church in Revelation was he would pick out pieces of chapter 1 that he had already introduced himself to John as and he would introduce himself to that church as something pertinent. But in this case, he doesn't go back and pull anything from chapter 1. He's already run out of those. So he introduces himself to Philadelphia somewhat differently. Holy and true, we understand. We understand these words, but a quick breakdown. Holy, the best definition of the word holy is the word other. Let me explain what holy kind of means in a, in a basic down-to-earth uh, sense. Um, do any of you have clothes at your house that you only wear when you do certain things? Sure, I mean, maybe it's work clothes or maybe it's... Have you ever used the phrase church clothes or Sunday best? Yeah, that you got, maybe you got... Y'all, let's be honest. If you come to my house during the week or you run into me in Ingalls, I don't walk around like this, okay? I don't generally wear this throughout the week. Um, most of the time, even on Sunday night, I don't. I might wear a nice pair of jeans and a polo or a button-down and a jacket if it's cold. Why am I wearing this this Sunday morning? Well, one, to keep folks from being confused because I look like I'm 12, so I have to convince people I'm a pastor somehow. <laughs> you know, so I wear this occasionally. But... I wear this for for special times. So in a basic sense, maybe not a religious sense, the word holy could apply to them because they are set apart for something special. At its core, that's what holy means. It's something that's set apart. It's something that's different. It's something that is not for common use. If I'm going to go out and and, cut the grass, I'm not going to put this suit on. That's, that would, I would need clothes for common use. These would be for special use. Okay, so there's, there's no other clothes of mine that I use like these. Now, in a way, 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 way above that sense, God is holy. There's nothing else in all of creation like Him. There's no one else like Him. There's, no, there's nothing like Him that is worthy of honor, that is worthy of glory in the same way that He is. He is separate. He is apart. He's different. He is holy in the ultimate sense of the word. There's nothing to compare him to. And also, he is true. That Jesus is not only true or, reli- or holy, he is also true. He is reliable. He is genuine. That these words are almost self-evident. We get what they mean. But what in the world is the key of David? That's an interesting phrase. Now, we understand what holy means, we understand what true means, but we don't understand what the key of David is. And Jesus says he has the key of David, he opens and no one shuts, and he shuts and no one opens. Well, you don't have to flip there, you can if you'd like to. But, Jesus is drawing this directly from the 20th chapter of Isaiah. This is almost a direct quote from the 20th chapter of Isaiah in verses 15 through 23. And I'll read it to you and then explain why Jesus decided... To, to, to do this. Isaiah chapter 20. Uh, oh my goodness. I, I put a quote there. I put my, my reference down wrong. Um, so now I feel, I feel quite silly uh, at this moment. Um, but at any rate. Um, I will find this. And then I will share that with you later. I feel very unprofessional right now. Because I tabulated that wrong. Um, 
when Jesus says that, um, and he says, uh, actually, I, I, have it in, I have it in my footnote right here, um, 3-7. It's Isaiah 22. Isaiah 22. I had a typo. Um, I knew it was there. Isaiah chapter 22. This is a direct quote, and now that this has happened, I probably should have put it on my handout, so it would have been quicker. Um, this is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 22, uh, where Jesus says, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Go proceed to this steward. Now, what is a steward? A steward is someone who does not own property, right? But he's just the custodian of it. So if you left and you went on a long trip and you said, Josh, take care of my house. And when I say take care of my house, I don't just mean vacuum. I don't just mean clean up. I mean, when the bills come due, I want you to take the bill down to the, to the Georgia Power Office when they used to have those. And I want you to pay the bills. Um, I'm leaving you money to do it. I've left you all the money. You take care of my house. You would have made me a steward. So God says, uh, go to this steward, to Shebna, that's the guy's name, who's over the house, and say, what have you here? And whom have you here that you have hewn a sepulcher here as he who hews himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock? So in other words, he had been given charge over this particular house, but he was starting to treat this house like it belonged to him. He, he, was, he was acting with authority he didn't have. Verse 17, Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will, turn, he will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country, and there you shall die, and there your glorious chariot shall be the name of your master's house. So I will drive you out of your office, and from your position he will pull you down. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe, I will give him your job, and strengthen him with your belt, and I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. So what was happening in Isaiah was someone had been given charge over the house of David. And when I say the house, I mean his estate, his authority. This guy was a steward, but he was using it incorrectly. So what God did is he said, I'm going to take you out of your position and I'm going to put somebody into it who is actually going to do the house of David honor. And he is going to have the key, the authority, the right to rule David's house. And he is going to do it in the right way. And when he opens the door, he's going to open it with an authority that nobody can shut because he's in charge of David's house. When he closes the door, nobody's going to have the authority to open it. Why? Because David was king. That God had promised the rulership of Israel to David and to his descendants. So there was no higher court of appeal than the king. So when the king says yes, nobody else can say no. When the king says no, nobody else can say yes. So when Jesus is claiming, I have the key of David, I can open a door and nobody can shut it. I can shut a door and nobody can open it. Jesus is claiming he is the ultimate fulfillment of what Isaiah said. Anything that David has belongs to Jesus. Any authority that David had belongs to Jesus. 
He is in charge. And there is no higher court of appeal. Now, why would Jesus choose this particular phrase? That I've got David's authority. That I am the rightful king, the rightful ruler. Why that? Well, we'll see. He's about to say. Jesus says, I know your works. By the way, Stapleton, men, women, boys, girls, aunts, uncles, grandmas, grandpas, he knows yours too. And he knows mine. He is aware. And Jesus says, see, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. Why? For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. This church, the church at Philadelphia, Stapleton, here's why I said this, this passage is encouraging. This church at Philadelphia either had few people, little power, or both. Stapleton, have you ever felt like we're small? Not just as a city, but sometimes as a church. Have you ever felt that way? Family talk, okay? Have you? Yeah. And y'all, in 2019, in a world that prizes bigger is better. Bigger is better. That, 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 that's the way everybody thinks about everything. I went to England. Me, me and Emily and Nugget went to Angles yesterday. I saw a pickup truck that I feel like was as big as our house. I, it, was a, it was a gigantic, I, I mean, I don't even know if extended cab is the correct word. It's more like house cab. It was huge. And I mean, I probably shouldn't have done this, but I was walking into the store and I slowed down so that I could look in the window of the truck. I'm like, what's in this thing? Because there has to be some cool stuff. I mean, y'all, that truck had to have been, I mean, it was enormous. It barely fit in the parking spot. And so me being a dude, I'm like, I like this. I could go for one of these. And no, that's, that's not going to happen. One, because I don't know that, I feel like you have to have a CDL to drive the thing. <laughs> but at any rate, no, it was just a big truck. But I was impressed by it because it was a big truck. That we think bigger is better. And we can do the same thing. You know, sometimes, you know, you think schools. Bigger is better. You know, not, not always the case. But you think schools. Bigger is better. Stores. Bigger is better. Uh, uh, you know, sports teams. Bigger is better. More fans. Bigger, you know, bigger, whatever. That's not always the case. Because just about every church except one or two that Jesus had talked to before he talked to Philadelphia, he had something bad to say about it. But this church, Jesus specifically called them out for being small. He said, you have little strength. There's either not that many of you, or those of you that there are, you don't have much clout. You don't have much power in society. He said, but what have you done? With that little strength that you had, what did you have? You've kept my word and have not denied my name. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Jesus, y'all, Jesus doesn't care if there's five of us or 500 of us. Jesus would rather have a church of five people who are faithful than 500 who do not care. 
And that ain't me saying that I don't want us to grow. I do. I want a Sunday to come where this church is standing room only and we've got to discuss having two services because there's not enough room in here anymore. I want that. I think most of you do too. And if we reach that point and you don't want to have two services, then we have to extend the sanctuary. So make your pick. I want to get to that point. But I do not want to sacrifice our faithfulness as a church to get to that point. Y'all, there are easy things we could do to pack people in here. I could stop preaching that for one thing. There's plenty of offensive stuff in here. There's plenty of not popular stuff in here. Now, there's some things that I'm all right changing. That ain't one of them. Personal faithfulness. Let's step away from talking about the church as a whole. At one point, let's talk about yourself as individuals. Me, me too, I'm including myself in this. There are probably ways that you could double or triple your friend count overnight, right? There's some stuff you can get involved with. There's some stuff you could do. There's, there's always a crowd some places that would be glad to have you as part of them. But you would have to sacrifice faithfulness to Jesus Christ to do so. So what we're going to see as we continue going through this passage is that there are going to be a lot of choices. There's going to be the choice to remain faithful or the choice to be successful as far as the world is concerned. But your homework is to go back and look at how many churches thought they were successful that Jesus said, hang on, wait a minute. I need to talk to you about something. The very church we looked at last week, they had a reputation for being alive. Everybody thought they were alive except for Jesus. This church is the exact opposite. Everybody thinks they're dead, except for Jesus. So he says, you have a little strength, you've kept my word, and have not denied my name. Now, why does he specifically say you've not denied my name? Look at verse 9. He says, indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. I think this is the reason that Jesus said, I've set before you a door that's open and no one can shut. Because a couple of weeks ago we talked about this, but I'll recap it now. Toward the end of the first century, up to a particular moment, the majority of Christians were still identifying as Jews. Much of the early church were Jews who had come to know Jesus as their Messiah. And so the concept of them not being a Jew was something foreign to them. If you asked them what they were religiously, they would have told you they were Jews. They wouldn't have told you they were Christians. That doesn't mean they didn't worship Jesus. They did. They believed in Jesus. They trusted him as their Jewish Messiah. They considered themselves to be Jews. But there was one group who did not consider them to be Jews. They considered them to be heretics and blasphemers. And that was the Jews who did not recognize Jesus as Messiah. Now these Christians, these new Christians who did not think of themselves as such, they thought of them as Jews, they continued to go to the synagogues on Saturday because that's what Jews did. And they were mingling with the other Jews and sharing their faith and saying, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. You need to accept Jesus as the Messiah, that he came for us. He fulfilled all the promises. Well, all the Jews who thought they were blaspheming, they had it about up to here. With these Jews who kept saying this man from Nazareth was the Messiah. They thought he was a blasphemer. 
So what they eventually did, what the Jerusalem leadership eventually did, was they put out kind of a big letter that is known as the curse of the Menim now. It's a weird name, but it was horrible then. That what it did was it was basically a, a Rome-wide edict that said followers of Jesus are no longer to be considered or recognized as Jews. They are no longer welcome in the synagogue. They are not welcome in the temple. They are not welcome in the Jewish community at all. They are excluded. In other words, the authority in Jerusalem shut the door on the synagogue. They were shut out. And when you were shut out, man, you were shut out of the community. If you go back and you look at, look at Acts, do you remember when Peter... You know, a quick story, story time. Peter's on the, the roof, he's praying, and he has the vision that tells him that you need to go see this man named Cornelius and you need to go into his house and share the gospel with him. Why was Peter hesitant? Because Cornelius was a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew. He was unclean. He, didn't, he was hesitant to go into the house. Well, guess what? Now, all these folks who all their friends their entire life had been Jews. Maybe their mom was, was a Jew. Their dad was a Jew. Maybe their sons and daughters were Jews, but they hadn't accepted Jesus Christ. Guess what? Now that this edict has come down and you're excluded from the synagogue, mom's not coming over for dinner anymore. Your kids don't ever come visit anymore. Your friends don't want you to come into their house. In fact, they don't even consider you their friend anymore. You are excluded from society as a whole. And the door has been shut to you. So this is why I think it's very important that Jesus said... I'm the one who has the power to open and close doors, not them. They can shut you out of the synagogue, but I'm the one who has the keys to the doors of my city. I'm the one who has the keys to eternal life. And you, Philadelphia, have chosen my door instead of theirs. And that's a choice that belongs to all of us. But at, at the current moment, this letter needed, was needed for encouragement because these folks have lost everything. That this synagogue has put them out and they're openly mocking them. And what does Jesus say is eventually going to happen? He says, I will make them come and worship before your feet. Not worship you. <coughs> Worship Jesus, but effectively what he says happened is he says one day when every knee has to bow and every tongue has to confess that I am Lord, when they bow before me and they confess that I'm Lord, I'm going to make sure all of you they excluded are standing there right beside them so that they will have to look up and know that you people that they excluded, that they said had it wrong, I'm going to put you all right there as a testimony that they actually had it wrong. Now, y'all, Jesus doesn't play around, does he? Jesus is trying to encourage this church. In fact, he warned them this was going to happen in John 16. He says, these things I've spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you think, will think he does God a service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. This little tiny church was surrounded by people who either did not love God or had no care about him whatsoever. And some of them had probably started to wonder, what if they're right? 
I mean, if God loved us, wouldn't we be bigger? Wouldn't we be more influential? Wouldn't Rome be off our back? Wouldn't our Jewish family and friends and community, wouldn't they still love us? Wouldn't the synagogue not be shut off to us? Wouldn't God show that He loved us more if He did? They were constantly assaulted with the accusation that you are not really God's people. He doesn't really love you. You should either hook up with Rome or you should either go back to being real Jews. The reality was that Jesus had never stopped loving them. He had never turned their back, his back on them. He had never put them aside. Their faithfulness in light of this trouble and exclusion is exactly why Jesus commended them. All of the other churches that appeared more outwardly successful were the churches that received rebuke. It was this church that everyone thought was failing. That Jesus said, you guys are mine. I've never left you behind. Now, what's the danger? What's the danger here for us, for as a church, as individuals, is it's really hard to withstand that kind of constant pressure, isn't it? When folks on the outside are saying, man, y'all are a lost cause. What you're hooked up with is a lost cause. Man, all that church wants to do, they just want to suck all your time up. They want to keep you from enjoying your life. Wouldn't you rather be here? Wouldn't you rather do this? Wouldn't you rather be part of this instead? Or wouldn't you rather be part of this community or have this? You know, that's, that church is dying. That church is dwindling. Look at them. There's only about five of them, and there's only about 300 of us. Who would you rather be part of? Come on. Oh, you used to have all kinds of fun with us. You used to do all this with us, and now you don't want anything to do with us because you'd rather to be with that church over there. They don't care about you. That wears on you, doesn't it? Or maybe it's not voices that you hear right here. Maybe it's voices that you hear right here. Man, am I wasting my time doing this? Am I wasting my time here? Am I wasting my time with this Jesus thing? Because I know plenty of people who are fine people that they don't have anything to do with the church and they have a lot more friends. Have a lot more fun. Maybe they're right. Don't worry about your church's size or your friendship group's size nearly as much as you worry about your faithfulness. That was what got Jesus' attention. And if you don't pay attention, Hebrews 2 1, therefore we must give more earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest we what? Drift away. If you ever put your faith on coast, you'll just float out to sea. You'll just drift away. Matthew 10, 25 through 26, talking about people who want to run their mouth about Jesus is faithful. It's enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. In Psalm 119.46, I will speak of your testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. Y'all, your faithfulness to Jesus, regardless of how tough it gets, is worth it. And the reward for that is that one day Jesus will recognize you. You may never get recognized for faithfulness on this earth. You may never get gratitude for it on this earth. 
Folks may not even know about your faithfulness. That's okay, because somebody does. Look for Jesus' commendation. Look for Jesus' praise more than for anybody else's. And one day he will recognize you. That's what you want. You want his recognition. So the reward for faithfulness is recognition. Jesus rewards faithfulness with peace. Now let's look at this. This gets interesting. Jesus says in verse 10, because you've kept my command to persevere, in other words, because you've remained faithful, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Jesus keeping them from this trial, whatever it is, we're going to talk about it, is a direct result of their faithfulness in the face of everybody who says, y'all have this wrong. Now, what is this trial? The hour of trial that Jesus speaks here, speaks of here, is commonly referred to as the tribulation. Now, what is the tribulation? The tribulation is a period of seven years throughout the book of Revelation that is the worst time period the planet Earth has ever known. Uh, This is a quote from the New American Commentary. Um, Just to explain, I don't want to get into all the details because we're going to do that as we preach through this. But this is just kind of a quick synopsis. A fair reading of the text from the words of Jesus previously cited through the Apocalypse or the book of Revelation suggests that the worldwide consequences of the tribulation judgments will be such that perhaps as much as three-quarters of the world's population will die in a seven-year period. How many people are on earth right now? It's getting close to eight billion, I think. So think, think, think what it would be like if, if, if the seven-year period started today with an earth population of eight billion people, you're talking about in a period of seven years, six billion of them dying. China has about two billion people in it. So to put it in perspective, imagine everybody on earth but the population of China dying. Put it in perspective... That's how rough the tribulation is going to be. There has never been a time period on earth quite like that. And we're going to see why as we continue going through this book. This is the culmination of human history. This is the last major test. The scriptures picture a time of unparalleled natural upheaval, of war and rumors of wars, and of political and economic instability and disaster. Now, Philadelphia had been through the ringer. Their church had been through rough stuff, but they had not been through anything quite like that. And Jesus says, because you are faithful now, I am not going to put Philadelphia through that. I'm going I'm to be a nerd for a minute because that's who I am. Anybody in here ever seen any of the Star Wars movies? At all. There are like three hands in here and a couple of nodding heads, a bunch of people shaking their heads. All y'all five people, I see you. Y'all are my friends. Um, <clears throat> there's a scene in episode one, which I, I like to forget exists because it's a bad movie. Um, but there's a funny part 
where they're, they're in kind of a submarine and they're running away from this giant fish monster that's chasing them. And they run and they run and they run and they run and they run. And what eventually saves them is another giant fish monster comes out and bites the thing that has been chasing them and drags it off into this trench. And the only line that gets said is, there's always a bigger fish. You ever heard that before? There's always a bigger fish. That I promise you, whatever you think is chasing you right now, I promise you there's a bigger fish. It could be worse. It could always be worse, couldn't it? You can always say, well, I don't know that there's anything worse than what I'm dealing with. Sure there is. Jesus is saying, Philadelphia, I know. I know that you've got it tough right now. You're excluded by everybody. You're not protected by anybody. But I promise you there's going to come a day when you will be protected by me from something that everyone else on earth wishes they were protected from. And because of your faithfulness now, you will not have to deal with that tribulation later. Say, well, wait a minute. Where's the church of Philadelphia now? It's gone. Well, Josh, did Jesus lie? Nope. I promise you, those faithful people dying rather than going through the tribulation was much more preferable. You say, well, that seems kind of cheap. No, it's not. I guarantee you, everybody in here has said something quite like this. Have you ever had a loved one who was suffering that you said something like, they know where they're going it would be better for God to just go ahead and take them now so that they don't have to suffer. Have you ever said something like that? That's exactly what happened to Philadelphia. So how do we apply this? What does this have to do with anything? Matthew 5 verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. This is a matter of priorities, y'all. Would you rather have all of your enjoyment and all of your happiness and all of your fun and all of your inclusion and all of your recognition right now at the expense of faithfulness to God? Or would you rather hunger and thirst for righteousness and chase after the things of Jesus Christ and put aside the things of this world that by nature are unfaithful to God. They're things that he's told us to stay away from. Would you rather have those now and tribulation later or would you rather chase after God and say, you know what, Jesus, you died for me. That I am a sinner. That you died for me so that you could make me new. So that you could save me. So that you could make me a new creation. And I want to dwell with you. I would rather live with you. I would rather find my joy and my recognition with you. Rather than have all of this stuff that's passing away now. It's a matter of which you'd rather have. Faithfulness now leads to peace later. Faithlessness now. Faithlessness now, that doesn't guarantee you protection from anything. Y'all, that begins the moment Jesus returns to claim his church. Which could happen at any minute. 
You don't know that you have time to get your relationship with Jesus straight. You don't know that you have until the end of this service to get your relationship with Jesus straight. Christ is coming. Take whatever amount of time you have left and be faithful. Luke 16, 24-25. Then he cried and said, this is in the middle of what some people call a parable. It was the rich man and Lazarus. This is a scene where the rich man is in, is in hell. Not necessarily because he's rich. And, and Lazarus, the poor man, is in heaven. Not necessarily because he's poor. The rich man says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. That was not passive. The rich man passed Lazarus every single day. He had an opportunity to be faithful and to obedient every single day and show mercy to this man who had no ability to do that on his own and he chose not to do it. Likewise, Lazarus spent his entire life having to trust in the goodness and mercy and faithfulness of God just for his next meal. So what would you rather have? Would you rather have the good things of the world now and nothing good of God later? Or would you rather forego the good things of the world now so that you can have the goodness of God later? Faithfulness. Philadelphia chose faithfulness. And then finally, as we close... Jesus rewards faithfulness with stability. Uh, Verses 11 through 13, he says, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. That crown is not like a crown you would expect a king to wear. In ancient Greco-Roman athletic events, uh, when you won, you would get what was called a stephanos. Um, It was a garland. It's kind of like a plant garland. Um, If you've ever seen pictures of the ancient Olympians that have the little leaf crown on their head that was effectively what we do today when we give medals that if you placed you got a stephanos you got a garland it was your reward for winning jesus says hold fast what you got so that no one will take your victory in other words let no one convince you to abandon your faithfulness And then he promises, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. What is a pillar? Big post. We got some out front, right? When you leave, those, take a look at them. They're pillars. There are other pillars in this building that you can't see because there's walls closed in around them. Now, the purpose of a pillar is to do what? It holds up the roof, right? So a pillar has to be stable. It has to be, if it's not load-bearing, if it's not strong, it's not really a pillar. It's just cosmetic. A pillar is the definition of stability. It's what holds everything else up. When Jesus says, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar... Man, have y'all ever worried about maybe the stability of your life or the stability of your church? And you look at something and you go, oh my goodness, all it would take would be a huff and a puff and the house is going to come blowing down. Jesus says, right now, guys, you're worried about your stability. You're worried that you're going to go under. And as a pastor, listen, this is encouraging to me. Jesus says, the one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the house of my God. We will never have to worry about stability again. 
We'll never have to worry about the house coming down on us again. As a pastor, every day I worry about reaching new people at this church because I don't want Stapleton to just be here for the next 10 years. I want Stapleton to be here for the next 100. I want us to continue reaching people. But do you know one day there's going to come a day in the glorious eternal kingdom where we're never going to worry? We're never going to worry about the church folding up. We're never going to worry, is this going to end? Is this going to be over with? One day, you're never going to have to worry, is my life going to cave in on me? Is this body going to cave in on me? Are my finances going to cave in on me? My family going to cave in on me? Is my mind going to cave in on me? I worry about that every day. You're never going to have to worry about that anymore because Jesus says the one who overcomes will be made a pillar. And I'll read this as the last thing. That'll be Psalm 1. And this is, the, this is the definition of stability. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, stable, right? That brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. It's stable. It's there. It's not moving. But the way of the ungodly shall perish. That faithfulness, y'all, that's the source of stability. Faithfulness in Jesus Christ, because He has promised the one who remains faithful to me, the one who doesn't let go, the one who grabs a hold of me and would rather have me than anything else this world has to offer, there is not a force in the universe that can shake him. There's not a force in the cosmos that can shake her. That I want to offer that stability, that peace, that recognition to you this morning.